Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Emily Cornell. Emily is a strategist and coach who helps women really show up authentically and unapologetically. Emily and I connected through the network of the Foreign Service in which we are both spouses of US diplomats. Our paths also overlap as coaches and business owners finding creative ways to build our professional lives while moving around the world. In today's conversation, Emily shares pieces of her journey, which include growing up with domestic violence, becoming addicted to alcohol, her path to sobriety, being a woman in recovery, and learning to truly love herself. Emily shares that stories truly saved her life. She's passionate about sharing her own stories so that others will know they are not alone and that there's hope. I'm grateful for Emily's courage in life and in sharing her journey. During our conversation, we talk about a number of books and resources, and we have included links to all of those in the show notes. Emily is also extremely gracious in her openness to connect with anyone who might resonate with her journey. Her website, email, and social media links are in the show notes, so please do not hesitate to reach out to her directly. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for sharing your stories, which I believe are saving lives. Emily, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And just a moment ago before I hit record, I was starting to reflect back on how we initially connected. And then I was like, no, 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 let's just capture this on the conversation. And I'm gonna I'm gonna invite you to share that part of the story of how did we initially connect and you end up being here on the on the podcast. Yeah. So we found each other in a group for um, EFMs for foreign service spouse spouse, family members, et cetera. Um, and I had reached out asking for some questions and help and guidance around getting my coaching business started. And you graciously offered, and then we got a chance to connect and we've been chatting kind of on and off since. It's really cool to just kind of see all the different connection points. And there's the connection with coaching. There's the connection with the foreign service, being a spouse trying to start a business when you're moving internationally <laughs> and the question of, wait, does this work? Can this work? How can it work? <laughs> so yeah. And then I know and we're going to get into this a lot, but your passion for stories and sharing your journey. And um, I'm really, really grateful for, for this connection and uh, for your willingness to, to jump in and share. Absolutely. I think that's, that's, you know, those connections, that's what makes us human. And that's what makes everything better. Yes, indeed. So on that theme, with this podcast, which is built around the quote from Mary Ann Evans, what do we live for? If it is not to make life less difficult for each other, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is something that I like to say and something that I really live by, which is, Stories saved me mm. and stories still save me. And 
I believe that part of what I'm here to do in terms of making life less difficult for others is to be a storyteller and to help other people find their stories. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what I'm here to do. I've been doing it since I was a little girl. Um, you know, if I had to put a title on myself, it's actually three things. It's storyteller, strategist, and coach mm-hmm. in those order, um, in that order. But I think the the root of everything is, you know, stepping into my own story, being brave, um, telling it where, where I've had to be brave, but then also um, speaking through the experience of how, of how my own story um, could have gone a different way, but really didn't because I ran into people who had bravely told their stories. And that's happened multiple points in my life. So um, when I think about making life less difficult, I think of story. I, I feel, I feel a lot of things right now. I feel so much gratitude. And, and again, the connection piece, because this really is at the core of why I wanted to start this podcast. And I really had been searching for a number of years to try to find some platform to share stories because I have also experienced that power of hearing people's stories, knowing I'm not alone in my journey, feeling that human connection. And it and it's so interesting, right, Emily, because like we meet people, we make all of these assessments and judgments about them. Oftentimes in my mind, I see people and I'm like, they have everything together. They've figured everything out. And then I start to get to know them and they start sharing their stories. And I'm like, oh, they have struggles too. Oh, it's been a challenge for them too, <laughs> right? And it's I mean, funny. it happens all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the whole, we compare our outsides to other people's insides. Mm-hmm. And when we sit for a moment and when we find each other as humans and understand, um, you know, I've been taught to look for the similarities rather than the differences. Mm. That's something that I try to hold. And, and yeah, as soon as people start talking it, it, as simple as like, what do you do? Or do you have any kids or whatever that is? There's always something I yeah, I'm always looking for those connections, whether it's like at the Starbucks counter or, you know, something a little bit deeper. <laughs> yes. I love it. I'm curious, Emily, as you were sharing a few minutes ago, you talked about really being a storyteller from the time you were a kid. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. When, when, when does your mind take you back to when you say like this started even when I was a kid, like where, where does that begin? Probably second grade. Maybe even, maybe even a little bit, you know, the first, the first books I remember writing were in second grade, you know, writing and illustrating. I wrote a story about vampires who had lost their teeth. Um, But if I really stop and sit for a minute, I learned pretty early on. So um, part of my story is growing up in a household with domestic violence. And when I was in first grade, there was a pretty bad incident Um, where my mother was hospitalized and I wasn't supposed to be in school the next day. We were supposed to be on vacation and I went into school and I spoke my truth, but was told um, that maybe I didn't understand or, you know, this is, this is near 30, more than 30 years ago. Right. So the protocols are different now, but I was told at that time, I maybe didn't understand what had happened. um, And I kind of learned so at about age six, I learned that it matters 
what story, right? There's some things I also was encouraged later on by my family to not talk about it. Mm. So there are some stories fit for public consumption. There's some stories that aren't. There are some stories that we that we it's okay to share with the world, and there are others that aren't. You know, and later on in life, I I went um, in college. I be I was an English lit major, so I did take some writing courses, mm-hmm. and then I I shelved that for a long time. And um, about five years ago. Right about the time um, that I got that I was able to maintain sobriety and stay sober, we can get to that in a bit. Um, I, I came back to writing and specifically uh, creative nonfiction and memoir. And so I started thinking even more about like what are the stories, what are the stories I carry, what are the stories I share, how do I share, etc. So, it's really something that's been kind of wrapped up, you know, from a very early age. And then as I've grown, I've become really more conscious about um, the art and craft of storytelling as well as the psychology of storytelling. So I'm I'm so curious to hear a little bit about the journey from your six-year-old self where you went into school, you shared the story, right? Kids do. And and I, I think that there's so many times, right? For, for kids growing up in a household, whether it's domestic violence or sexual abuse or emotional abuse, or kids don't know what's right, what's wrong. Like it's, it's just kind of like the norm, whatever. So to go in to say, this is what happened and then be told, oh, you don't understand and start to be shaped in that direction. And then you, you mentioned later, you know, the family was more direct about these these events don't leave our walls, right? Which is often, again, kind of family code or or culture that happens regardless of what's happening at home. What was the journey like for you to get to the place where you said, oh, I, I am going to share these stories. I'm going to step outside of the quote unquote, you know, code of the, the family or, or culture. What was that journey like? Yeah. So, so my mom courageously left when I was in sixth grade. So that was another first grade to sixth grade. And then it, and then it took, um, it took a long time. My high school years were not awesome. Mm. <laughs> I went to four different high schools. We moved around a lot. Um, they were rough. I, I was, you know, a quote unquote, not great kid. I got to college, did okay in college. Um, partially because I got a 1.37 GPA my first semester <laughs> was invited to get my act together. So I did. Um, It wasn't until my mid late twenties that I was able, I had been in counseling on and off, but it really wasn't until my late twenties that I was able to get the type of counseling and was ready to do the work to address this, this childhood trauma that I had grown up with. Um, And it wasn't just the violence that I had grown up with, because that, that was actually um, my mom and a stepfather. I had also um, gone through the divorce of my parents, my mom and my father when I was four, and he was not in my life. And so there was all these, these traumas with big T's and little T's. And in my late twenties, I started doing the work, really doing the work, really addressing it. Um, And that took a good couple of years. And 
it was a journey. It was a, a journey. Um, lots of time on therapist couches, <laughs> lots of time figuring myself out. Yeah. At the same time, I, while I was working on myself, I also was really starting to struggle with alcohol even more than I had. Like I had always been a problematic drinker from the very get go, but um, my my drinking really really picked up, and all of this was coinciding. I had a um, had a brief marriage in my twenties. That you know, really great guy, but like I was not together. I wasn't somewhere that I was not ready to be married. Yeah. And so that fell apart. And as that fell apart, the drinking got worse, but I was also in therapy working on some of this trauma stuff. Um, and then in 2015, I was that 2015 was the worst year of my drinking. Um, so that would have been, I would have been 32 years old. Um, and shortly before I put myself in treatment, I actually um, did a storytelling event called Listen to Your Mother. Oh, wow. So it's, I, it was at the time a national storytelling event with events in each city. And I was in Minneapolis living at the time. And I wrote a monologue um, that I wrote and performed and opened up the show storytelling about motherhood. Wow. I was not a mother. I was divorced <laughs> and it was the first time I very publicly spoke about growing up in the house that I did, mm. right? That I, and there was a freedom that came from that mm. and to take away the shame and to say, you know, the title of my piece was despite everything, mm. that despite everything, I really believed in that moment that, that I was going to come through okay. Mm. Now, the irony was that three months later, my drinking I got to the point where I really needed, a, I needed professional help. So, but, but I've kind of always been one of those people who I'm clawing my way up as I'm sinking down. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how that worked. So I, I was able to speak that out loud. Then I got into treatment. Um, took a little while for sobriety to stick. <laughs> and then in the last five years, as I've been, um, as over five years now, as I've been continuously sober and continuously working on recovery, I've just been more and more stepping into being able to talk and to share um, some of the things I've been through in the hopes that they help other people. Yes. And I have no doubt that they do and will continue to help other people. I'm I'm really struck by the description of you saying you've always been someone to kind of be clawing your way up while you're also kind of sliding down. And I think there's such amazing beauty in that, Emily, because aren't we all kind of clawing our way up while we're also sliding down in different ways with different challenges in our life and to 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 realize and to really say, Hey, there's beauty and power and healing in sharing our story. Even if we haven't gotten it all figured out, right. It's not like, Oh, we have to wait until we have all of the milestones to be able to look back and then tell the story. Like there's, there can be really so much beauty and power and healing in 
sharing along the journey as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things I've learned along the way, um, I think that's true. I've also learned, because I think one of the hallmarkers of having grown up in kind of a chaotic household is that I didn't always have the discernment to be able to share (laughs) right at the right time um, in the right spaces. So like in my early 20s, I, you know, I think about being in the workplace I was in and I was, I was like a super overshare, right? Like everybody knew about my stress. Everybody knew about, you know, and, and I think over time and with getting, getting help and learning to sort of um, be more combobulated as it were, you know, I've, I've learned, um, I think it's Brene Brown who talks about not, not sharing from a wound right? So, so while I do share what's going on, you know, I think about it. I, I, I do filter it a little bit. And if there's something that's really raw and tender, that's maybe somewhere for a more private space, whether that's like a recovery circle or, um, or in the safety of a therapist's office or whatever. Um, I'm very cognizant of the fact that like, that if my stories are going to be of a greater service, it's best to share from a place where they've been, they've been processed out a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And it, it strikes me too, as you share that, I mean, and I've heard too, where it's sharing stories from scars rather than from wounds and finding the right set and setting to tell the stories of our wounds, because yeah. that also right is part of the journey. And, and oftentimes those do need to be told in a more, a smaller space with sometimes, like you said, the recovery group or with a therapist or with a close friend. And, and it is a different context than the public context sometimes, or sharing in a, you know, podcast format or things like that. And so I think that's another piece of storytelling that is sometimes overlooked where, okay, well, storytelling we're going to go public with our story. And yet there's so many, so many different contexts for storytelling and then thinking through, okay, which, which is the, which is the most beneficial, the most helpful, the most healing context for my story at this time and which story. And yeah, there's, there's some, some strategy to it, bringing us back to your strategic side. I've learned a few things over the years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Emily, I'm curious. I mean, you've, you've now touched on it um, from a couple different angles with your story of sobriety, but where, if, if to share more about that and your journey, um, I'd love to invite you just to kind of jump in and, and start where it makes sense to share a little bit more about your journey there. Well, I think the, easiest place to jump in is that summer of 2015. Like I mentioned before, my drinking had been, had been problematic from the get-go. Um, and I, there's a uh, problematic drinking that's run in my family, um, not immediate family, but in, you know, in the past. Um, and yeah, alcohol and I always had a tricky, complicated love affair. Mm. <laughs> so, and I do, it was a love affair. I loved the way it made me feel Mm. until I didn't. But in the summer of 2015, it was 
causing me to do things that I was not proud of. It was causing me to hate my life. Mm-hmm. It was causing me to, um, to be in a world that was becoming increasingly smaller. And after a particularly rough incident, um, where I made a complete and total idiot of myself and hurt some people that I really cared about, I, um, I called up, uh, Hazel and Betty Ford. I lived in Minnesota at the time. That's who I knew they were right there. And I called and thought, you know, they do a little assessment. And I thought to myself, oh yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm not gonna, (laughs) I won't qualify. And sure enough, they were like, yeah. So, um, would you like to start this week? So I did, I did what they call an intensive outpatient program. So I was still working, still living in my home that was accessible to me, but I was in treatment for a good couple of months, several times a week. And then basically all day Saturday, figuring out how to live without alcohol. And I've mentioned that it, it didn't stick. I was able to maintain sobriety for 11 months. Um, and then I was sitting in an airport. I worked in advertising, um, and had this really glamorous job. Okay. It looked glamorous on the outside. (laughs) (laughs) I had this job that felt really glamorous and I was doing a lot of business travel and there was a delayed flight one day. And I thought to myself, well, what will it hurt? Mm -hmm. And then I spent the next seven months in 2016 finding out what it would hurt. Um, and by the end of 2016 in December, 2016, I, oh, I was, I was not happy. I was really not happy. Um, and it kind of came to a head one night. There was nothing special about the last night I was out. Um, the last night I got drunk. It was, I was out on a date. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't particularly do anything horrible, right? Like it wasn't super dramatic. I I left my car downtown. I got an Uber home, but something shifted. And I woke up the next morning and I thought to myself, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I happen to live in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is a glorious place to get sober. Um, And because I had had a little bit of experience previously, I opened up my computer that morning and discovered that if I got myself out of bed, threw on some clothes that I could literally walk down the block to a recovery meeting. Oh, wow. And so I did. And I have been sober since December 10th, 2016. And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work and really hard at first. And it is the hardest, best thing I've ever done. What do you think it was that shifted? I have to believe it was something bigger than me. Mm. I do. I think Oh, my world was really, 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 really small at that point. I had, I had ostracized a lot of friends. I was boring. You know, I was working and then I would come home and, and drink wine. <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't have, didn't have any hobbies. I didn't do much other than work and, and drink. Um, so I think it was some combination of just being really tired of being tired as well as grace. Mm. It just, you know, I don't, I don't know how else to put it other than something clicked. It was my time. When you think back to, from that time on December 10, 2016 and moving forward and the the difficulty, the hard work, 
what and who helped make that time and journey less difficult? Yeah. So when I walked into that recovery meeting that morning, I didn't love myself. I was a hot mess. I'm pretty sure I was, well, I was definitely hungover, maybe still drunk. Like, you know, I was a hot mess. And I walked into a room of women who were going to love me until I could love myself. And the most put together of them with, you know, beautiful hairstyles and looking great. Here I am. I was literally in like sweatpants. Um, You know, they said, yeah, I've been there too. There's a better way. And I quickly fell in with a group of women and some guys too, but primarily women who showed me how to just keep putting one foot forward in front of the other in a life without alcohol. And that meant calling people and it meant speaking up in these recovery meetings and talking about the hard stuff and talking about the good stuff and discovering what I liked to do. Cause like I said, I didn't have any hobbies, right? Like I thought wine was my hobby (laughs) (laughs) and it is for some people, but for me, it was not a good hobby. Um, You know, I started going to museums. I started reading books. I started doing art. Mm. I found a couple of months in, I found a group of women who um, there was a long running podcast called The Unruffled. And they were a group of women using recover, or using creativity to, to really fuel their recovery. Wow. So I got art supplies. I figured out how to write again. Um, that's, that's what got me here. Mm. That's what still gets me here. Mm. There's, when you, when you describe that group of women who said, we will love you until you can love yourself. There's a lot of emotion came up for me because I think that is so just incredibly powerful and transformational. And again, coming back to the connection and the power of connection and story. And for those women to say, we get it, we've been there. And to hold you in that space without judgment, but just with pure love. Um, I mean, it, it just... Yeah, I mean it, it touches something in in me and is it's just so powerful, right? The the human connection is so powerful. Yeah, I think it was I don't remember when I heard it, but maybe you've you've stumbled across it. Um oh my goodness, can't remember his name, but there is a TED talk out there and one of the lines um the hypothesis is that the opposite of, addic- of addiction is not abstinence. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. I have found that to be true. And that's something that I have to attend to. Um, you know, it's something I have to work extra hard at as I move in this sort of, you know, globally mobile life that I have to maintain connection with both people in recovery and then just, you know, everybody else in order to stay healthy and to stay doing what I'm doing. You know, I have to actively seek and nurture and um, and maintain those connections for me to stay healthy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, there's particular challenges with staying connected in our expat lifestyle in the foreign service life where we're moving every couple of years. We know when we move somewhere, the time frame, and yeah. is it two years? Is it three years? Is it one year? Um, and and it can be particularly 
particularly challenging to make connections when you already know that the end is on the calendar. And, and, and I will say it's also difficult to make connections sometimes when you live in a place and you never move. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's challenges there um, no matter our setting, but I'd love to hear more about how you, how you do maintain those connections and what works for you and what doesn't work and how do you keep it going? Because I think that is a, a human challenge, um, right. That can be highlighted by various elements of our life, but, but it does seem to be a human challenge to keep those connections. It is. I, so first of all, it's an active practice for me, right? Like I think of that connection building. It is like taking my vitamins. I have to do it. And I think of it kind of like gardening. I'm not a good gardener, but I am a good friend. I'm, I'm a good friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I have little reminders in my day planner of like, Hey, you need to check in with this person. You need to do this. You haven't heard from this person in a while. And so, um, it was a skill I had to learn and of, of that tending. And so that's something that I do. Um, and I know that that's just who I am now because I've learned it. Um, you know, in terms of the recovery stuff, it's hard. It's, it can be challenging, particularly when I'm living in places where I don't necessarily speak the local language or where recovery um, may not be something that's as accepted, talked about, dealt with. Um, so I do have for my recovery connections, I have a lot of virtual connections Mm -hmm. and I maintain those, um, that I, that I plug in, that I get myself to virtual recovery meetings. Um, and that I, uh, make it, make it a habit. That group that I told you about with these women using creativity, I'm super plugged into them. Right. I actually just came back from a writing workshop in the San Juan Islands in Washington, where I met up with one of them and um, we carpooled together. Nice. So, so, and I think that having that basis of, of learning how to tend to connections has actually really helped my expat foreign service life. Oh, I'm sure. You know, that, um, you know, texts are great. Texts are really good. They're good for communication. Uh, rather, they're good for notification, not necessarily communication. Mm-hmm. So I'm much more likely to use, and it depends. But I've learned that the voice memo on WhatsApp is fantastic. Yes. Um, and I've learned that asking a friend for a video call is great too. And mm-hmm. so I try to schedule a couple of video calls a week. You know, I love that you call this a practice and skill because I think it absolutely is. And I have experienced the challenge of developing the skills as my husband and I have been living outside of the U S and moving around the world for the last 10 years. And I had no idea when we first started in this life, what a skill it would, (laughs) it would be and what skills it would require. Um, But I love that you do that. And I love that you have reminders in your calendar. And I've, I've noticed sometimes for myself, and I'd be curious if you have this challenge or if not, um, you know, what, what part of the skills it, it could be, but 
there are times for myself where I just want somebody to reach out to me. I don't want to be the one reaching out. I'm always doing the reaching out. I want somebody to reach out to me and I can get stuck in that place. And I'm just curious, like if you resonate with that and what you totally. do, kind of like get yourself over <laughs> yes. that kind of hump. <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. I think that's human. Right. And, you know, being aware of where people are at. And sometimes we don't know, you know, sometimes, sometimes we just don't know. And, um, I guess I've learned that, that if I'm missing someone or need connection, like the only person I can control is myself. Right. I, for better, for worse, as much as I would love (laughs) to control other people sometime. And so, yeah, of course there's times, but I have been able, I think because because I, I do tend to these relationships, um, I've been able to find the people who do check in with me. Mm. And, and I think, you know, to put it in sort of these, like, in, in terms of what I learned in advertising world, like I've got a portfolio of, of friendships, right? So there's friends I have for a season, you know, where we come in, we meet somebody at post, we really like them. But the thing that's keeping us together is the geography. Yeah. And when we move on, that season has ended. There's people that I meet and I know that they're, you know, as Anne of Green Gables would say, kindred spirits Yes. and they're going to be besties for life. Mm-hmm. And I have some of those too, you know? And so it's, it's kind of the balance and just understanding and honoring each of those friendships or acquaintances for where it is, what it is. I think that's a big piece of it too. And trying to not put too many expectations on any one person is really big too. I love the idea of a portfolio of friends and, and and I haven't used that language for it before, but I have noticed as, you know, friendships develop. And, and I think one of the things that is somewhat unique to the expat life where we're moving every few years is that as adults, we are continually making new friends. Whereas if I would live in the same town for my whole life, I mean, it's really cool to have friends that are just your friends for life or over the course of, you know, decades. And there's something really special about that continual process of making new friends. And it's not always a given in our lives as adults. And yet with that comes the different um, types of friends that we run into, right? And some that are just part of our lives for a brief period of time and others that are going to stick with us and stay in touch. And it took me a while to figure that out because I would, I tend to get, I have, I I get emotionally attached. I like the emotional attachments with people. And so the first couple of international moves that we did where I was saying goodbye, I was just like, this is going to wear me out. Like, how do I adjust to this? Cause I am, I'm devastated and I'm exhausted. And I know I have to do this again in another two and a half years. And how do I do it? Um, so kind of, I, I guess it's almost like a process of part of the skill develop is also letting go and realizing if I don't stay in touch with someone, it doesn't actually take away from the meaning that we had. Cause I used to be like, oh, it's so sad. You know, we don't stay in touch anymore. And, and to kind of realize, well, that's, that's okay. That doesn't detract from the beauty of that relationship in the moment that we had it. No, it's so true. And I think the other thing too, right, is I 
actually was really sad for a long time. So I lived in Minnesota, but I wasn't, I didn't go to high school there and I didn't go to college there, but that's where I spent the majority of my adulthood until, until I married my husband and moved overseas. Um, people in Minnesota don't move. They had their same friends since high school. And there was a lot, like my twenties, I was really sad that I didn't have that group of friends. Yeah. So it, it, I grew into this philosophy or, or worldview that I have now around friendships. And I was thinking the other day, and I was literally looking at the globe going, where do I have friends? And as we do, you know, when we move, as these cycles happen, I have friends every corner of the globe. How cool yeah. is that? <laughs> it's you know, really and, cool. and I think the other piece of it, too, is I don't, I don't say goodbye right? It's a, we'll see you later. And I don't know when that later is going to be right. There's non-attachment to the later yeah. because you never know. Yeah. So I think that's a piece of it too, of, and it's okay. It's okay. If the see you later is one of those, I'll see you later probably may never happen. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it takes, it takes a little bit of the sharpness off of that, that bittersweetness of ending. Yes. Yes. I, something else I have done and I, I first did this in our, I guess it was at our second post. I have a number of friends in my life who just don't stay in touch when we're not in the same place. Now I can get together in person with them and we pick up like there was never a moment apart. Right. And, and, and it's beautiful, but I really struggled because again, a number of really good friends in my life just don't stay in touch and don't enjoy phone calls, things like that. And so I, when I first started making a, what I considered, oh, you know, a, a solid connection and getting to know this woman, I was like, and thinking to myself, this is a potential close friend. I just asked her, I was like, can you tell me, are you the type of person that stays in touch over long distance or, or not? Because I just need to know ahead of time it's okay if you don't, but I just need to know. And I think I might've even told her, I think I'm maxed out on my limit of close friends who don't stay in touch. <laughs> so I just need to kind of guard. <laughs> and it, it was beautiful because she, um, I remember her response. She's like, I am the best. I am the absolute best at staying in touch over distance and time. And, and indeed she is, and is one of my closest friends no matter where in the world we we live, but it was kind of a funny experience to put that out there on the table and just ask like, okay, well, what's your communication style if we're not living in the same place? <laughs> but isn't that like, okay, what I love about what you just said is that you knew what you needed, mm. you articulated it. And then it just so happened that this was a partner, you know, a, a platonic partner who could give you what you needed. Like, that's amazing. And I think the more we can have conversations like that, and it is a compressed time, you know, if we're somewhere for two or three or four years, the more we can have those sort of really honest conversations around what, who we are, what we need, like that just adds richness. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Emily, I would, I would love to kind of pivot just a little bit um, into the kind of going back to your journey of sobriety, sharing stories. 
you and I both exist within this world of the U.S. government, and there's medical clearances for traveling and being posted overseas. There's um, there's just all sorts of, um, I mean, stigmas. I mean, yeah. for for lack of a better word, that are associated with any sort of um, challenge that we have. Right? There's there's sort of, um, I mean, I don't know how we've gotten here, right? But there's sort of an expectation that everybody has all of their shit together. And, yeah. you know, here you go off. You're a diplomat family. Now go be perfect somewhere else in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just not the case, right? No, no. But, but there is this expectation, right? Um, yeah. So the the thing I will say to that is that going through my medical clearance after I got married, um, so my husband and I were high school or sorry college sweethearts who reconnected. Oh wow! And we we reconnected six months after I got sober or where it stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know they say not to do that. I did whatever, um, and then we got married nine months later. But mm-hmm. my husband was already a foreign service officer when we got back together. Okay. So he was posted to Brussels. I had a business trip to London. I mean, the rest is history. Aww. And we got married in my living room. And I have, you know, I had sought treatment for the, the alcohol use. And I had also um, had mental health treatment in the past for depression and anxiety and PTSD. And so we knew that the medical clearance was going to be a thing. Yeah. Um, and we actually pushed up our wedding. We were going to get married in May of 2018 in Vegas. Mm-hmm. We got married in my living room in St. Paul, Minnesota in March of 2018. And the reason we did was because we knew it could take a while for me to get cleared to come to post. Yeah. Um, it was a really nerve wracking. So here I am. I'm like brand freshly married. Mm-hmm. My husband's already back in Brussels. I'm sitting in St. Paul and we're waiting. Yeah. And while there was professionalism and while it was treated with, with professionalism, it was still nerve wracking to be, to, you know, am I going to get cleared? Am I going to be able to go to post? Right. It was hard. And I had, it felt a little bit like I had to prove that I was okay. You know, all the medical records, all the treatment records, an interview with, um, with a psychiatrist, an action plan for how I, you know, and I was by this point, I was just over a year and change um, of sobriety. So of course they wanted to make sure that I was going to be okay, but I felt like I had to prove it. Yeah. And that was hard. It was really hard. Uh, Over time. Does it continue to come up or is it okay? Well, you got that clearance and now you're good. How has that worked? Yeah. So in terms of the medical stuff, um, every time we move posts, I do have to go through, um, and every case is different, you know, so the, the longer I have in sobriety, the less of a thing that is, you know, they of course want to make sure that I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, with my mental health stuff, I am still continue to be, I'm still treated for depression and anxiety. So that is a thing mm-hmm. that I have to, um, that I have to talk about and make sure that, uh, you know, for example, the regional, they call them the regional medical officer 
psychiatrist, RMOP, is on board and that um, I have what they call a class two. So I'm cleared for specific posts. Um, and that's based off of, am, am I going to have access to the things I need to stay healthy? Right. So it is, it is about making sure that I'm okay. And it's a pain in the butt to go through it every time. Yeah. Yeah. It just is. And, and I think the bigger thing you touched on the stigma, I think one of the things that when I first got to post, so I'm freshly married, it's 2018. I, my husband had been at post for a year. I come in and I'm trying to navigate this world. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and I think everybody will say that our world can be a little, and I don't think, I think some people overdo it. I don't think it's, you know, it's not the, the cocktails flowing, like maybe it was in the past. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the social functions do revolve around alcohol. So that's yeah. something I had to navigate. Yeah. And for a while, there was a lot of shame that I carried, right? I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't, you know, I was keeping my, I was keeping my sobriety, but I didn't want anybody to know. And I'll tell you what, that year was really hard mm. because of that shame that I carried. And so in 2019, I took a trip back to the U.S. for a writer's retreat, the one I was just at again. I had the opportunity to sort of come out as a woman in recovery in that setting. And when I went back to post, I decided that that was going to be an identity that I was willing to claim publicly. Mm. And in May of 2019, I was actually invited to be on on the same podcast that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I told my sobriety story publicly. It was like, well, it's out there. Wow. <laughs> How did that feel? Terrifying and and liberating. Mm-hmm. It really felt liberating. And since then, I have been, I don't hide it. I don't hide it. It's not the first thing because it's not the most, it is the most important thing about me, but it's not the most interesting thing about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a lot of other stuff that's really interesting. I've got a two-year-old son. I'm a writer. You know, I got other stuff going on. And I don't think people spend that much time with me before they figure out that this is part of my, part of who I am. Yeah. You know, everything from, I started a book club here and I asked people to BYOB and I asked them to BYOB at home because mm-hmm. I don't, we don't keep wine in the house yep. for my safety. Yep. You know, so it was a little awkward at first. I've gotten much more comfortable at it. And now it's it's pretty easy for me to be like, oh, yep, please take your wine home with you. I don't keep it in the house. You know? I, I love the just the simplicity and the directness that you say that. What what advice do you have for others who might be struggling with that, right? Like particularly that first year that you described where you're going to a lot of social events and 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 there is a lot of alcohol involved. And I mean, it'd be at a glass of wine or a cocktail or just, that's just the expectation. What do you want to drink? And I mean, what do you, what do you, what did you, how did you kind of come to a place of like, okay, this is my strategy. This is how I handle it. I'm direct. Um, what got you from that beginning awkwardness, the shame to this point where you're just like, nope, I'm direct. And I can kind of just say this. I mean, for me, what I realized is that the shame was keeping, the shame was actually pushing me to a not good space, mm. right? I, you know, I know, I know probably thousands now, at least high hundreds people in recovery. And some have been, some have chosen to be very open 
And some, for whatever reason, it's not, it's not their time or it won't ever be their time to be open in it. And having other people who've been open and, and able to talk about it, and, and that's happening more and more publicly these days. So women like Laura McCowan, who wrote We Are the Luckiest, uh, Holly Whitaker, who wrote um, Quit Like a Woman, and the more public, you know, I was sort of coming out as a sober woman along with with a more cultural shift where we are talking about it more. Mm. And I still think that doing so in in our circles can be tough. So I would say the first thing I would do is if if this is something that's new for you, it's okay to keep it, you know, it if it it's okay to keep it in. It's all, it's also okay to 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 share it if that whatever you do whatever you need to do to keep yourself safe mm. and healthy. You know, for some people that's sharing more, for some people it's not. And to know that um, when I first told my story in May 2019, I, I really thought that I was like the only sober person in the foreign service world. Mm. I really did. I mean, I know that to not be true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are more of us. Um, yes. You know, there are more of us. We can be found. I can be found very easily. I can help connect people to other people. Find, find your birds of a feather, mm. right? Because chances are we've been through something and have navigated something and know how to do it. Like find the people who can be your Sherpas. Mm. Yeah. And again, it just brings me back to the power of story and hearing other people's stories and knowing we're not alone. No. And that's, that's been true. You know, that's been true for me when I, when I have been able to sort of share my story or parts of it, other people have come to me. Um, I've gone to other people, right? You know, it's, it's not that we want to bond on trauma, <laughs> but, but, you know, we can't go through hard stuff by ourselves. Yeah. We just can't, we're not designed to, yeah. you know, you've got to have your people. It, it, it's so true, Emily. And I just literally yesterday started reading a book I think that's pretty newly published called Bittersweet. And it is written by Susan Kane, who she wrote the book Quiet a number of years ago about introverts. And people just really, I mean, resonated so deeply with her book about introverts and the power of an, being an introvert. And she's written this book called Bittersweet about really, I mean, the the more the melancholy side of life and people who are in more of that melancholy, sad space. But I have for probably the last two years have identified sadness as one of my superpowers. And it's been really kind of, you know, it's a little bit awkward when people are, what's your superpower? And I'm like, sadness. They're like, that's not a superpower, right? (laughs) And I was so affirmed because in one of the write-ups about this book, they're like, sadness is a superpower. I'm like, see, see, um, you know, but, but the idea, and she talks about some of the research and the neuroscience of how we connect through our pain points. And it, and it, again, it's not about like, oh, let's all just stay in a place of sadness. And it it's like passing through that, connecting through those pain points, sometimes through a place of sadness leads to these deep connections, which leads to joy, which leads to gratitude. And it really is an amazing human experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for that book club, by the way. 
Yeah. If you read my if you read my blog. So I have a I have a blog that I started at, I don't remember. And it started off as this very sort of um I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my adventures of being a foreign service wife. Mm-hmm. And then I went to this writing workshop three years ago and I was like, oh no, no, I'm <laughs> going to. And what I joke is that, yeah, it's a story, it's a blog about my life, but it's really a blog about my feelings. Mm. Yes. And I joke that the the melancholy, right? That if somebody reads my blog, they're really just gonna like it's all melancholy. And that's okay. I, I'm learning, is. I'm actually learning how to write about joy, but I'm real good at the melancholy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I am I am there uh, right alongside of you, indeed. Yeah. Emily, there's I, I just want to I want to say that I would love to invite you for part two, um, because there's so much more to your, your journey and so much wisdom that you have to share. And I'm so grateful for this time that we have had together. And I I would, we've, we've talked about a number of books, you've mentioned different resources. Um, I want to put all that in the show notes and, and also if someone wants to reach out to you, um, are you okay with that? And, uh, how, how, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So if people want to, um, find me professionally, it's really easy. It's emilycornell.com to, to get at my coaching practice. But if somebody wants to just reach out, um, my email is always open ec at emilycornell.com. And I, especially if somebody's coming with something sensitive, I hold things in the highest confidence. Um, and if people want to just follow along the adventures, I can be on Instagram at EC Cornell. And then I also, my melancholy blog is unexpectedexpat.com. And right now the theme of it is how bad the traffic is in Santo Domingo. (laughs) (laughs) Mixed in with a little bit of Dave Matthews band, but you know, that's, that's kind of what the theme has been for the last say six months or so. Nice. And I will put all of it, put links to all those, um, all that information in the show notes. Emily, thank you so much for sharing and for yeah, just the storytelling that you do and the impact that you are making in the world. Thank you so much for the space. This has been wonderful.